Drinks, food, art, fun. This is Hops and Spirits, Kentucky. It is definitely festival season. I swear all of our communities across Kentucky are uh, getting people out and about to enjoy uh, and explore our, our great communities. We had the Beer Cheese Festival in Winchester this past weekend in Midway, the Bourbon and Blues Festival. So a lot going on. Hopefully you can get out and enjoy one of those because, uh, like I said, they're a ton of fun. And you get to explore a lot of places that you maybe not uh might not visit very often so i highly recommend it but before we get into our episode with howler head what's pouring some news and notes from around kentucky ramsey's diners in lexington announced on facebook their tate's creek location will be closing after 32 years on thursday june 22nd employees will be allowed to transfer to their other locations around lexington which include their helmsdale zanedale harrodsburg road and beginning in early august a new masterson station location the new masterson station location will be a larger one than any of the other ramseys and will feature a drive-through for carry out for those looking for a fun father's day experience rd1 is hosting a special bourbon tasting experience for you and dad at its distiller district location in lexington this four bourbon flight tasting will be led by the father-son duo and rd1 executives mike and chris tedderton you're bound to hear some good behind-the-scenes story here and get some up-close father and son uh, uh, chat as well. Cost is about $30 per person. It includes the bourbon tasting, small bites, and two cocktails. Tickets are available online under the events calendar at rd1spirits.com. And more bourbon news. Logstill Distillery, founded by Wally Dant and Cousins Lynn and Charles Dant, recently announced the launch of its single barrel selection program the single barrel selection program includes a private distillery tour and a guided tasting of multiple single barrel selections including monks road bourbon and rattle and snap tennessee whiskeys to learn more or to schedule a visit visit logstilldistillery.com bardstown bourbon company's summer patio series is underway the series includes live music food and drinks reservations are not required but recommended the event happens every other Friday with the next happening on June 23rd, starting at 5 p.m. Rain or Shine. The series runs through August. For more information, visit BardstownBourbon.com. And then starting Wednesday, June 21st, Manchester Music Hall in Lexington's Distillery District invites all to a new free event, Manchester Music Hall Summer Sessions. The series runs through August 30th. There's no cover charge and tickets aren't required. The first session is on the 21st, featuring Dustin Collins as the host. You may have heard him on our Bar Conversation podcast and performances by caleb cecil sarah beth terry jake ellis and austin reynolds sounds like that would be a good way to get up to date with some of the artists ha that you might be hearing and seeing around kentucky up next though is our q a with Hallerhead whiskey and simon hunt figure exactly you'll find out exactly how this ties back to kentucky and it'll make perfect sense enjoy Remember to check out Hops and Spirits on social media at Hop Spirits, all one word, on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find Hops and Spirits on YouTube and at HopSpirits.com. Joining us for our Q&A this week, he's in London. The brand may be international, but you'll find out how it connects to Kentucky here on Hops and Spirits Kentucky. Welcome in the CEO of Catalyst Spirits, Simon Hunt. Hi there, Jonathan. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. And we'll get into the connection to Kentucky because it makes a ton of sense once we get into it with Hallerhead. But before that, I always open up with the little Cliff Notes version. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Not too much because we got stories to share, questions to ask. Totally. Look, I'm a, a bit of a mix of everything. Look, I, I grew up half in Australia, half in the UK, um, but I've spent a lot of time in the States. My wife's from Tennessee. My three kids were born in the US. We lived there for 10 years. But it's uh, so I'm back in London now. Um, and I've been in the drinks industry for 30 years. I've worked in uh, some of the biggest companies, the Diageo's and the Pernod Ricard's. 
Uh, my last job at the bigger company was the chief executive of William Grant & Sons, so a company behind brands like the Balveni, uh, Glenfiddich, some really interesting single malt plays, Grants, Hendrix, things like that. Um, and then I stepped down from that about two years ago and set up Catalyst Spirits. So you, you've done a little bit of everything is what it sounds like, but I'm always curious, how does one get into the spirits industry? Because I don't feel like that's, you know, when I went to school, I think when others went to school, that wasn't like an option that they gave us of where you could end up. <laughs> you know, it's funny on this. I, I get invited back to to, uh, to some of my old schools saying, could you come and do a career day and explain to a bunch of, in this country, 18-year-olds, that'd be 21 and for you guys, about what it's like to work in the drinks industry. And clearly, I'm, I'm normally oversubscribed, put it that way, because it's not your usual career option. Um, look, I started out in this. I, I, I was at university, and when I was at university, I had various jobs, and one of them was actually I was working for a catering company, so I was already doing some stuff in hospitality. But then I started running theme nights at nightclubs uh, in London, and through that, I just got into the industry. And I tried really hard, and uh, I think my parents would have liked it if I'd have followed some of these other things of going off. And I tried banking for a summer, and I tried you know, some other consumer goods categories, and I just came back to it. I think it's one of those categories that is, it's a little bit in your blood. And if you like, if you're sociable and you like going out, there aren't many jobs where you can be in a bar at two o'clock in the morning and still be working. Um, and that, that was one of the things that attracted me to it. And then, so I think you'll know from other people you've talked to, once you're in this industry, it's hard to, it's hard to get out because it's great fun and got great people. Well, and, and you've done a lot, a lot of cool things. I also, you mentioned you're from Australia, live in London, but you love bourbon. How did that happen? Yeah, it was funny, actually. I, so I was I started my career at Diageo and through that, end up getting exposed to kind of really the whiskey world, but it was so dominated by Scotch and particularly by Johnny Walker. It was only when I uh, I was working with Allied Demet, the company that used to be behind Maker's Mark. And uh, I've got a great story about kind of being introduced into Kentucky. This is, you know, this is well, I would have been, I think, 29 as a funny story, so at the time, I think Makers was just starting to really ramp up. And so supply was really tight. But the board at, at Allied Demec knew that there was this big opportunity for Makers around the world. And I was given the task to get in the plane, fly from London to meet with Bill Samuels, to convince him to take some of his Makers juice and blend it with something else and create an export Makers. And so on paper, this all made great sense. And the board said to me, look, I think you're going to have a tough time. And a couple of people said to me, he's, he's pretty tough on this stuff. So good luck. You're going to need it. Um, so I, I flew over and I got off the plane and met him at the distillery. And Bill used to have this thing. I don't know if you've you heard this from other people. Bill used to give you a, what he called a personality test, but it was actually an intelligence test. So he'd give you this thing you had to fill out. And basically, you know, for the first half an hour of being there, I filled out this form and he went off and marked it and came back in and went, yeah, you're all right, which I think meant you know, you're good enough for me to talk to. So we sat there on, on the distillery and wandered around and we talked for probably three or four hours about the process and the history and the family and the flavors and where it all came from and the effect of temperatures and all this fabulous stuff around makers. And, uh, and I still hadn't started saying to him, look, is there something we can do on this export version? And so he said, listen, let's, uh, we'll, we'll carry on our conversation at dinner. So I went back to the hotel, changed, went out to, to some steak restaurant. And, um, and I was building up the confidence to say to Bill, hey, Bill, listen, we've, we've got to, you know, we really do need to do this for the markets around the world. It'll work. This is going to be great. And I was a bit jet lagged and I ordered a, a small fillet steak. And Bill kind of leaned back in his chair and he looked at me 
and didn't really say very much. And he just said, look, son, in Kentucky, we eat beef, we eat it properly, just like how we make our whiskey. And that was the end of the conversation. There was never a maker's export. There was never any further conversation. That was it. So that was what, nearly uh, nearly 25 years ago now. So yeah, I've been, uh, I've been passionate about uh, the authenticity in Kentucky for a very long time, directly as a result of Bill, I think. I, I love that. I love that. There, there is something to it. Uh, you know, as, as you got more involved with, with bourbon and, and things like that, what, what was it like to see that industry? Cause it's, it's gonna, it's had a crazy run uh, probably since in those 25 years, you know, it was not exactly booming in the, you know, eighties, nine early nineties, things like that. Then it began to take off and it's a whole different animal now. So what's it been like to look at all of that? Yeah, look, it's really interesting. I remember at the end of the 90s, actually, everyone was referring to this bourbon lake and all this maturing stock. What was everyone going to do with it? I mean, now if you had a time machine, you'd go back and you'd buy all of it and get as much as you possibly can. And I think everyone would be uh, be very excited by that. Um, but I think what's been interesting is that, you know, if you look at the the development and the, the benefit of the roles I've done, I've worked in Canadian, I've worked in Irish, I've worked in Japanese, I've worked in Scotch, I've worked in bourbon, which means you'd be able to see how the whiskey market around the world, and it really is a world market now, um, has developed. And you've seen that there are patterns that seem to evolve. And whereas before you used to be able to say, look, I think based on certain factors, Spain will start becoming more of a bourbon market in four or five years, and you're reasonably accurate at predicting consumer behavior. What's happened is through social and through digital, all the trends that used to take years now take months, days, or, or literally hours in terms of moving that through. And I think that's had a profound effect on bourbon and also the appeal of bourbon around the world. And to see the resurgence in the US and led by the US, but then to see it expand internationally, it's a completely different market than it was going back 20 years ago. I think the innovation has been really interesting. I think you're continuing to see the big brands get more and more creative because they're forced to by a lot of these smaller players coming in, doing interesting things, interesting finishes, experimenting with wood, different mash bills, and really building up a category that was, you know, reasonably straightforward on some big pillar brands. And suddenly you've got all this interesting innovation around it. Uh, it's been fascinating to watch. You know, one of the things on this in the industry is you always know the categories go up and they uh, have a tendency to then come down again over time. But the future for bourbon at the moment looks incredibly bright. Uh, look at the growth rates around the world and even outside of the U.S. It's uh, it's really encouraging for everyone involved. Well, and it's something that you're you're involved with, and and you know you you're part of Catalyst Spirits, which has Hallerhead. Um, how did you get involved with them, and and why kind of maybe take that step after working with some some really big boys there for a while? Yeah, I think, look, I, I mean, I, I was this chief exec of, um, of William Grant for nearly five years. And I reached a point where it was like time for me to go and do something on my own. And my passion has always been brands and consumers and doing interesting things. And so I set up Catalyst Spirits about 18 months ago, nearly two years ago now, actually. And um, with the goal of coming up with interesting brands that most of the big companies wouldn't do, if I'm totally honest. It was taking, you know, seeing opportunities in categories taking what we know how to do as a team. We're a small team, about 15 people, but really experienced. We've got too many hundreds of years of experience to, uh, to tell you about, to be totally honest. But with that, and with that experience, it gives you the permission to experiment because you've, you've been there, you've seen it, you know what works and what doesn't. Um, and so actually I ended up getting involved with make uh, with uh, Allahead, um through a random connection of a connection. And this guy said, look, yeah, we've got this interesting proposition. 
we've come up with it. And I'll tell you about the story about that in a second. Are you interested? When I first looked at it, I suddenly was like, hang on, this is exactly what I'm looking at doing. And these guys are already already kind of there. So um, so the, the creation of Howler came about, uh, funny enough, from a, a guy called Steve Lip, uh, who works in the Scotch business. Alexander Murray is out on the West Coast, does a lot of sourcing of, of interesting whiskeys, um, out of the, particularly in Scotch. And he was looking to get into bourbon. And Simon Birch, who was running uh, Green River until Bardstown recently or fairly recently acquired it, um, was talking with Steve and his team about some interesting whiskies. And they had some bourbons and they had some different finishes and various other things going on. And Green River had Ron Call. Uh, and Ron's been, well, I think Ron's family has been in the bourbon business for what, it's about five generations. So Jacob was a master. So Ron was in the background, I think 42 years of experience. And Steve and his colleagues turned up for a, to try some different bourbons. And the last thing they tried was this liquid that ended up being Howlhead, which was not your run-of-the-mill bourbon, totally different with these banana notes that were off the hook. And that's how this whole thing started. Steve and the team loved it. Uh, they then worked with Stranger and Stranger, one of the best design companies in the industry, to come up with a really cool pack. Um, and then they had the pack. And uh, it was a funny story because the Dwayne Johnson, the Rock, was getting Terramana going, and uh, and the Rock and Dana White at UFC are friends, and the Rock was saying how much he loved being in the liquor industry and how much fun he was having, and Dana, I think, got a bit like, well, how do I get into this? And they share the same agent who happens to be friends with this guy, Steve Lip, and so. Steve, during COVID, sent a bunch of bottles down, you know, 30-year-old scotch, an interesting bourbon, and then Howlerhead. And, you know, for those of you who know Dana, uh, Dana just tried the liquid, gravitated to it instantly, and just was instantly on board. Um, and he became one of the one of the launching founders. Uh, so that's how the whole kind of process happened. And I got involved just after that conversation with Dana had happened. And then started setting up the team and starting to get the brand growing, which we're now... Yeah, we're in the US and Canada, we're in the UK, we're in Brazil, Mexico, Australia, and we'll probably be in 10 more countries by the end of the year because we've got a great liquid story that is interesting, but also with Dana, we get the connectivity of UFC, which is a massive, massive global property to work with. I was going to say, how, do, how does it work with having someone like that? Because obviously the UFC is international and they're in a lot of places and it's a cool logo to have kind of there it kind of stands out i mean i'm sure you've gotten some interesting uh feedback and stories uh, from from that partnership yeah definitely i mean it's it's one of these things which i mean i've, I've through my career i've worked with various other sponsorship properties i've worked on james bond movies and i've worked on this and i've worked on that the difference with ufc is it's a 700 million base around the world 700 million fans so it is a massive massive property and within that, you've got athletes from 160 countries. So every country has their own heroes uh, to get behind. And so working with UFC is fantastic. They, you know, we drive huge amounts of awareness by being in the octagon and being involved in the business. But also it comes from Dana. Dana's passionate about the brand. He loves the brand and he then gets his friends behind it, influencers, and then you know, the whole UFC machine behind it. And so we go from being a, a kind of a small brand out of Kentucky that no one's ever heard of to suddenly being a brand that people see every Saturday night on ESPN or on their TV screens in their respective countries. And I've worked on lots of new brands and built brands up from nothing, you know, and with Hendrix or Sailor Jerry or other brands like that. 
What's different on this one is I've never had retailers in Poland, Australia, Japan, the US call me directly going, how do I get this brand? Um, and that's a direct link to the sheer power of that relationship that UFC has as a platform. Well, and it's got to be interesting, too, because obviously the the flavored whiskeys are different than than per se how a typical whiskey is, is built. So can you like how obviously you weren't part of all the development and all, all that, but how does that differ, say, from something else and what kind of goes into a flavored whiskey? Yeah, look, I think it's a great point. And one of the reasons I got into it was absolutely the liquid. Um, and the reason being is that, and again, it's funny stories about kind of having these conversations with self-professed bourbon snobs. And I love meeting these snobs because they're so much fun to work with. Because their first point is, oh, you can't be doing your flavors. And what are you doing with flavors? Why are you ruining perfectly good bourbon? Now, one of the things of having worked in the scotch industry is I used to get access to the most expensive bottles in the world, literally over a million dollars a bottle type stuff. And through those things, what is so funny, you'd sit there with a very high-end consumer interested in buying this one bottle and you'd taste them on the liquid. And the first thing that would come out would be, what are the flavors? And so when I hear bourbon snobs saying, I don't do flavored whiskey, if you don't do flavor, you'd be a vodka drinker because the very nature of whiskey is about putting flavor into it. And it's funny, I would explain to people and say, if you think about the whole process and you start from the grains you select, you then get into you know, the wash you want to build, the mash bill. You're looking at the yeast you're putting in. You're looking at the water you're using. You're looking at the distillation. And you know, it's the reason the Scots love to keep the dents in their stills because they passionately believe that adds another layer of flavor. And then you look at the temperatures, the cuts you're taking. You're then looking at the dilution. You're looking at the wood you're using, the filling, the warehousing. Every single step of that process is about putting flavor into the whiskey and about drawing out those flavors that are already in there. And so I've, I find it classic when you talk about kind of flavored whiskey. Now, if you're just adding a flavor that's not something naturally occurring, I totally agree with you. But with Howlerhead, what we have is a two-year-old proper bourbon base. And in any whiskey, whether it's Irish, whether it's Scotch, whether it's bourbon or Japanese, when you are fermenting it, you create an acetate called isyl, isyl amyl acetate, which are the banana notes you quite often get in beers, you get in fermentation, anything fermented. And quite often you'll hear people talk about banana notes in whiskey. And that is because it's a naturally occurring ester. So part of the process of not only of fermentation is creating this ester, which then when you put it into a cask, gets concentrated, gets tightened up, gets rounded out through the charcoal filtration and through the evaporation. So you end up with this concentrated ester flavor that is the nature of any whiskey. And so what we have with, with Howlerhead is a banana flavored whiskey. But the banana is exactly the flavor that is naturally occurring that runs through fermentation and distillation. All we've done is we've just copied that flavor and dialed it up. Now, if you're putting some other flavor that's not part of the process, fair enough. I, I won't comment on that. That's not what I'm here to talk about. But if you've got something that's naturally occurring like that, then it means it works really, really well. And so when we decided on the liquid and finalized that, we knew we had to be an 80 proof bourbon. We didn't want to be down at 70. We want to be a proper bourbon, proper two-year-old Kentucky straight bourbon. And from that, we then dialed up the banana flavor that was a naturally occurring flavor. So we knew that it worked really well. And by doing that, it's given us a really fantastic liquid 
It's the reason we have double gold winners and we're award winners in San Francisco. Um, but it's perhaps most importantly is it's it then allows you to have a proper whiskey base with a flavor that is already in whiskey that works from a shop the whole way through to an old fashioned and anything beyond that. So it really holds up well. Um, and so when I come back to the bourbon snobs, this is the thing I love. Recently, I was out in the trade uh, traveling around and I, pro I was probably in 27 bars in three days. And I had, you know, I went to some really beautiful bars that had these incredible bourbon collections. And the guy had, I, I, don't, I don't do flavors. And, uh, and I said, look, just, uh, I just want you to taste it, right? If at the end of that, you still feel the same way, I totally respect your point of view. I did not have one bar that didn't take this brand. And so for all your listeners out there that may have, don't, aren't as big on flavored whiskeys, all I'd say is I challenge you, go try it because this has the highest conversion rate of any brand I've ever worked on. People go, wow, wow, that's spectacular. Well, I mean, that, that goes back to the juice. And, you know, we'll get into kind of working with Green River and everything there. But, you know, how does your process maybe differ from others? Because like you said, some are adding some non-normal flavors and they're getting into, you know, we've talked about, it's almost like a craft beer world where you've got every type of flavor now out there in a whiskey or, or, or some version of it. And I think, look, what the interesting thing on this, coming back to what we were saying earlier, is that bourbon continues to grow really quickly and that's fantastic for the industry. But as part of that, one of the reasons I think it's growing is at the other end of the extreme, where people that are maybe not as big a fans of bourbon, flavored products are helping to bring more people into the category and so you're seeing people source out of seltzers out of flavored uh, vodkas you're seeing people come out straight out of beers and directly into bourbon so i think it's a really important thing to say you know this this has got a role to play in terms of bringing people into the category i think what makes our, our bourbon different is the fact that we start with this proper two-year-old green river really good quality bourbon and we don't do older than that because we found that we didn't need to in terms of rounding out the flavor um, and as a result, what you end up with is a proper bourbon space to start with. And that comes through in terms of the taste, it comes through in the nose, but it also when you're then building up the, the banana flavoring into it, gives you this really long, slightly sweet, but balanced, not sweet, sweet, but slightly sweet balance with that 80 proof. And as a result, you end up with this fantastic flavor. So what we are doing is we're, we are copying the isoamyl acetate, the naturally occurring ester that's created through fermentation, and we're just putting it more in with the whiskey. It's that, it's some natural sugar, sucrose, and that's it. And then obviously folks have probably heard about a few other brands that have run into trouble with how they've either packaged things, done things, and it may not be pure whiskey or all whiskey. So what should people watch when they're going out and maybe looking at a flavored whiskey, because like you said, they maybe want to get into it, into whiskey. Maybe they're like, that might be my better sh shot than just going and buying a, you know, $60 bottle of, you know, 10 year old that probably they're not going to have any clue what they're tasting. Yeah. I think, look, look, ultimately on this, I think one of the things I'm so confident on is if whenever you can taste what you want to buy. Um, and that's where we're so confident. Last year we ran about 35 thousand consumers through tasting programs at retail across the US. And this brand had the highest conversion rate I've ever had, where people try it, they buy it. Um, and so that's the first thing. And then the reason I say that is, it means you can get people to, people trust their gut, people buy what they like. And if it tastes good and it smells good, and it holds together as a proper bourbon with this interesting flavor kind of uh, to it, 
then then it works really well. So look, I'm always conscious of you know everyone everyone in the industry needs to look after their own brands. But I think look, it comes down to the questions I would have is is a naturally occurring flavor in the whiskey process? If it's not, then make a different decision. Is it a proper 80 proof two-year-old Kentucky straight bourbon or not? And they've got a label on that to see if it is. If it is, then there you go. Is it from a distillery that I've heard of and then, you know, that I feel good about? And can I go online and find consistent reviews of, I've tasted it and this stuff's fantastic. They're the things. You go down that path, then I, I think they'll be really pleased with uh, with buying a bottle of Howler. And and like you said, the the biggest connection is it is a Kentucky straight bourbon, which means it's aged in a barrel for two years and obviously in the state of Kentucky. How did working with Green River go and how does that partnership work uh, for Hallerhead? Yeah, I mean, look, it's the relationship is set up before I got involved, as I told you earlier. But I think the um, the key thing, Green River makes really good juice. You know, when the when they distillery got back up and running and they they started laying down the whiskey, as they continue to blow out their their Green River four-year-old, you're starting to see it in more and more states now. It's winning lots of awards. The core base bourbon is exactly what we're using. So I think that makes it very easy to be proud of kind of working with them. And look, they're great partners now. Bardstown's acquired them. So we work with the team at Bardstown very closely. Um, and we're continuing to lay down whiskey for the future. The big challenge I have is how much am I going to need in 25 and 26 as we end up in, you know, 30, 40, 50 countries around the world. Uh, that's part of the challenge that we've got. Well, it's, it, I'm sure it's a, a fun challenge for you. And, you know, obviously when you're getting people to try a flavored whiskey, like you said, those bourbon snobs, so to speak, they go, ah, no, no, no. Is there an extra challenge with a flavored whiskey or is it just the same as any whiskey when you're trying to get someone to try it, you know, for the first time? I think actually I, I see a slightly different, I don't really see it as a challenge. I think because actually what you've got is it allows you to take all the stuff that people enjoy with a base bourbon. So whether it be neat or whether it be on the rocks or whether you're putting in an old fashioned or a mint julep or whatever you might be doing, if you've got a flavor that's naturally occurring, then it can work the whole way through all of those because it's already there. And all you're doing is dialing this up. So putting an interesting take on an old fashioned or espresso martini. I mean, literally, that's what I love about Howler is it can work the whole way across that. Um, and so I think it comes down to also kind of what what it, how you like to consume your, your brands and how you consume your products. It's, you know, ultimately on a, I think the, the key thing is, you know, you want to have fun with it. Uh, you want to be able to enjoy it and enjoy the flavor that it brings. And, you know, as you've done all, all this fun stuff, I'm sure you've got a few extra stories that you could share, share with me. You got any good ones before we, I get to maybe my last question or two. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the funniest ones for me is just uh, particularly in terms of Kentucky is I, I, my wife's from Tennessee. My three kids were born in the States. And um, I think, uh, any any man that's turned up to uh, to his girlfriend or you know hopefully his future wife's house to meet the parents knows how terrifying this is. Um, and I I went to go and see Carolee's father, and uh, I was trying to impress him with what I'd done. And I said I've worked on this vodka brand, and we did this with three James Bond movies, and I travel around the world and I do this, and I've worked with Maker's Mark and help. You've what you've done what? And the funny thing on this is all the other stuff I was trying to impress with, he couldn't care less. He was a massive Makers fan, loved the Bill story, everything. 
And that was the start of my relationship with him was actually I had credibility in his eyes, even though he's in Tennessee. And I know there's some healthy competition between Tennessee and Kentucky. Um, but he was a massive Makers fan. And that started my relationship with my what who ended up becoming my father-in-law. Um, so it's amazing <laughs> how you know brands like that and the story behind Kentucky can bring people together. Well, and, and I'm guessing maybe one day someone will say that about Hollerhead, right? That's the hope. That's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping. Absolutely. We're just getting going. You know? We're growing really, really well. The brand continues to grow uh, both internationally and across the US. And you know, I think the key thing on this, and look, I've done this for a long time. If the brand's good, the people are good, and the liquid's good, makes a massive difference in terms of being able to move it forward. And you know, as you work toward the future with, with a brand like this, what is kind of the next goal? Is it just to get it distributed further is it to do something else with it is it to do what's kind of the next you know future plan that you can tell me and not get yourself in trouble with anyone yeah i think look that the the number one thing we're trying to do is you know if you if you follow us on instagram you'll see we've got about 100 i think across social about 180,000 fans around the world and one of the biggest questions i get is when's it coming to finland when's it coming to switzerland when's it coming to china when's it coming here so um, so the number one goal we have at the moment is just increasing the availability of the brand. And that's off the back of the relationship with UFC. We've got this huge awareness and people just want to try the brand. And so that's that's the first goal. I think the second one on this is then really taking this into a leadership position within flavored whiskey. We are unique in the fact that we are dialing up a naturally occurring flavor. And I think that does set us apart from other whiskeys that are out there. And it's one of the reasons we're so confident in terms of the liquid. So continuing that story and really getting people to enjoy the flavor whiskey, but from something that's naturally occurring, and then it just works in a totally different way. And I think that leadership position that we, we think is there will continue to go after. Well, it sounds like yeah, you've got a good setup, some good juice, and, and not just a a good story, but a true story as well on how it all happened. And and Simon, thank you for sharing some stories and, and telling a little bit about Hallerhead. No, listen, Jonathan, thanks very much for having me. And I just challenge all your bourbon snobs out there. Go out and try it. I guarantee you're going to like it. Find more from Hops and Spirits at hopspirits.com. Thanks, everybody. Bye.